But wait, that was a glance. She looked over, and that definitely yes, was a smile. He smiled. Maybe she is interested. Is it warm in here? Unzip your coat. This is good. This is great. This is wonderful. But God, what do I do now? Will he say something? What? Anything? How? Interesting? Anytime? No. Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, September 17, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jan Simpson and Michael Portantier. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist who, and is the chief New York theater critic at Talkin' Broadway. He is a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Peter is uh, away this weekend, but uh, he'll be showing up towards the end to give us a little uh, trivia, love. <laughs> with us today, we have a very special guest. Manuel Felciano is with us. Broadway fans know Manuel from uh, various shows uh, starting back at Cabaret in the revival back in 1998, Jesus Christ Superstar, Brooklyn, the musical, uh, Sweeney Todd, Disaster, and Amelie more recently. Manuel, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Oh, please. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old little girl, so I am up for quite a while by this time. <laughs> I, I know that one. Oh, my goodness. They, <laughs> that is awesome. So um, They were forced out of the house so I could talk to you guys. Oh, you know, I was never able to force mine out of the house. Mine always – as we were talking about just before we started recording, when you get on conference calls is when they really need your attention the most, you know? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have the most important client in the world on the phone, and uh, the child comes in and is handing me a diaper, you know? Yep. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, great. Thank you for getting on and uh, chatting with us. Uh, we're just catching up with you sure. because um, you recently had a, uh, a cast recording, Zippers, uh, the world premiere cast recording Correct. over on Ghostlight come out. And uh, so why don't you tell the listeners what Zippers is? Yeah, sure. Um, Zippers is a new piece for orchestra and uh, two singers, and it's kind of a whole new form of musical theater. And um, it was written specifically with the Symphony Hall in mind, but mm -hmm. it is very much within the conventions of musical theater dramatic storytelling. It's in English. It's sung by pop singers. It has a very specific narrative of uh, a sort of boy-meets-girl story. And the, the wonderful thing about it is that because it is written for the symphony orchestra, um, it really takes advantage of the fact that it is performed in that kind of a hall, in that halfway through the piece, 
there is it's meant to be programmed around intermission. So it's a two-part piece, and the first part goes right before intermission, and the second part goes right after the intermission. And the intermission that takes place in the course of the concert is also an actual intermission within the story, and things happen during that intermission that are uh, very important. So it's, it's very clever. It's uh, uh, beautifully done, and um, I'm really thrilled to have been a part of it, and I, I know it's going to have a long life. How long have you been involved with it? Oh, God. Uh, since its inception, um, the composer Nathaniel Stuckey uh, is a childhood friend of mine from <laughs> my hometown, our hometown of San Francisco. And um, he is has a big career in the class- classical symphony orchestra world. Um, he wrote a piece called... Uh, the composer is dead with another childhood buddy of ours, Daniel Handler, who is also known as Lemony Snicket. Huh? Um, and that piece has uh, turned into the most performed uh, orchestra piece of the 21st century. And uh, so that's, that is his world. But, you know, he's always come to see me do my stuff on Broadway. And he came to see me in Sweeney. And I think he was really inspired to write something that was more theatrical and more musical theater. And um, this is what he came up with, and he collaborated on this wonderful libretto um, with uh, Dan Harder. And the libretto is what gives the piece its name, Zippers, in that uh, the two characters, the, uh, the man and the woman, each essentially sing chunks of the same lyrics, except that when they are put together like a zipper being zipped up, the two parts fit perfectly. And what's even more wonderful is that they make sense on their own independently, and then they make a whole new sense when finally zipped up together. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> as somebody who is a, a big Sondheim nerd, I, of course, fell in love with that, and I think he would too because it has that kind of formal rigor that he prides himself in um, in terms of structure, you know. I wasn't completely clear from what I read about it. Is Would you say this is a concept recording, or has this piece actually been done anywhere? Uh, yes, the piece has been performed uh, locally in the Bay Area, and uh, I know it's going to be performed again often and soon, especially now that we have this uh, cast recording out there. And I know that the cast recording was definitely a big part of the project's initial conception, and because it's such a unique form and a kind of, you know, uh, a new type of musical theater, uh, I immediately thought of Kurt at Ghostlight and, you know, put Nat in touch with him, and Kurt was very enthusiastic about it. So I'm especially thrilled because none of the cast recordings I've been on have been on Ghostlight, and I've always wanted to be on Ghostlight, and now (laughs) I can say I am. Would you talk a little bit about the storyline so that listeners will will know what it's about and, and if you know how it came about, how, how they settled on this storyline. Sure. Um, the storyline is at its simplest boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Uh, and what all the steps are that are involved in falling in love. The, uh, tentativeness, the enthusiasm, the 
fear, the regret, the finally maybe being willing to believe that somebody might like you as much as you like them. Uh, and all of those little steps, those back and forths, those negotiations are individualized in these different sections of the piece, which are, you know, almost like individual songs. Um, and uh, I don't know how they settled on that story, but if ever there was a timeless and universal story, it is uh, about falling in love and, sure. you know, all the complexities and struggles that um, are contained within that. But did and, I miss um, your... You know, one of the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering, did I mishear it or are they actors? When I, when I... Correct. So that's what I was about to get to. Yeah. So one of the, the, the wonderful conceits of this is that the two characters who are falling in love also happen to be the performers. So it begins in the story, literally with the action that they are doing in the concert hall, which is coming on stage and she drops her score and he picks it up for her and says, here, let me get that for you. And she says, thank you. And he says, you're welcome. And she says internally then, wow, what a, what a polite, nice guy. And he sort of internally then says, Hmm, she's kind of cute. And so begins this long internal back and forth between, mm, would she like me? I'm not sure. Is she wearing a wedding ring? I'm, I don't think so. Wait, I think she smiled at me. No, I wasn't sure. Could it have been? And all those things get uh, musicalized until we get to intermission where he has a proposal for her, which is, why don't we go back to my dressing room? And then, of course, something happens in the dressing room during the actual intermission. And when they come back in act two, everything has changed. <laughs> so this sounds like it's a perfect uh, thing to be debuted at Carnegie Hall, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, it definitely is a piece where the orchestra is important. You know, the orchestra mm -hmm. is a character in the piece. This is not a piece written for, you know... Um, a small band that then has been up orchestrated to full orchestra. It's a piece written with a full orchestra in mind uh, from the get-go. And one of the things that the composer, Nathaniel Stuckey, likes to say is he's very bullish on the orchestra. You know, he thinks it's the world's greatest band and it can do anything. And uh, what's great is that what we hear in this piece is the orchestra playing rhythms and grooves that are associated with pop music, but not necessarily associated with the symphony orchestra. And to hear, you know, a huge orchestra really groove is an amazing experience. And, you know, audiences, I can tell you from just being on stage, have never heard anything like this. this so uh, they are... Go ahead. I'm, I was just going to interject that this piece was commissioned by the o Oakland Symphony Orchestra, uh, the Oakland Symphony, um, and it, you don't very often see large symphonies uh, putting together musical theater pieces, which is a great crossover. Exactly, and that's exactly right. And I think that the important thing about how this crossover works is that normally when musical theater comes into the symphony hall, you know, it's in the form of concert versions of shows or mm -hmm. pop concerts, but they are pieces that originated in 
the theater or on Broadway that, that are then brought into the symphony hall. And what we're doing is we are saying that the symphony hall is the theater. You had hmm. mentioned you're from uh, the San Francisco area and uh, how did, you know, what was your upbringing out there? Did, are your, are your family in the arts? Did you, are you the first one to delve into the arts? What's your background in that? No, no. I uh, both my parents are in the arts. My father is a composer and a former professor of music at UC Berkeley, and my mother is a um, dance critic in the Bay Area. And uh, I always like to say that you know they. I was raised on you know the classics and the avant-garde, <laughs> and so my way of rebelling was pop culture, <laughs> and. Um, and so, you know, that's in a lot of the ways why um, uh, I, I got into the theater and into musical theater. And um, and one of the things that I love about this piece is that as I get older and as I think many of us do, we start to reconcile the ways in which we are like our parents, whether we like it or not, <laughs> and the ways in which we are still distinct from our parents. And so artistically, the way that is manifesting itself in me is this sort of coming together of the classical world and the more popular world or the avant-garde world and the more popular world. And that is something that is totally embodied in zippers for me because it takes this classical medium, but it's a huge crowd pleaser. And then how did you make your way from the West Coast to the East Coast? Uh, college. I uh, went to Yale uh, when I was 17 and uh, never went back until many, many, many years later um, when I uh, joined the company at uh, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco for a couple of years where I was able to really uh, reconnect with uh, my old friend Nathaniel and um, where I think a lot of the germination for this project started again. But uh, but I'm in New York. I'm back in New York. I'm, I'm a New Yorker, whether I like it or not, and I think I do like it. So, <laughs> Because of your friends, were you the kind of kids who got together and put on shows or something? Did, did you we... do a lot of that? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'm standing here in my apartment looking at a picture of Nathaniel Stuckey and I playing our violins together at age, I don't know, seven <laughs> or eight in Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. And um, we have been friends for many, many years, and we played music together. We had the same teachers, and his mother was my first and in a lot of ways still most important drama teacher. She was our school drama teacher. And... Um, and so we did plays together as well, and, and it makes me really happy that, uh, you know, a relationship like that that is both artistic and personal can become artistic, personal, and professional all these years later. So you have uh, six Broadway credits uh, right now. You have uh, – you've split them yeah. equally three and three with revivals to new works, uh, with revivals <laughs> being uh, Cabaret – and Superstar and Sweeney Todd and the new works yep. Amelie Disaster in Brooklyn, which couldn't be three more different works. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, for sure. So, yeah. So tell us, um, well, let's start from the newest. Uh, what was your experience like in Amelie? 
Oh, it was wonderful. It was, um, you know, it was one of those experiences where you just got in the room and you got to hear the score for the first time and let it wash over you. And then to actually, you know, be standing on stage opposite the extraordinary and luminous Philippa Sue was um, something that I, uh, I won't I won't soon forget the first time that happened. And um, Pam McKinnon was a, a wonderful director to work with. And I'm only sorry that it didn't have a longer life because I think it, it certainly deserved it. And I look forward to it um, having many lives, you know, in in the coming future. Well, how long were you involved with Amelie? I know it went through a lot. I was involved with Amelie for, yeah, I came in late. I was involved, I came in for the uh, Los Angeles production at the Amundsen. Mm-hmm. And then to Broadway. So, um, but it is a, it is a, a really a, a jewel of a little show, and um, you know my my heart is very much with it. You have to remember that you know as participants in these shows, we sort of become their defense attorneys, whether we like it or not. <laughs> oh yeah. Because, um, you know, our 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 we left a pound of flesh up on that stage, and um, you know that I think you have to be, otherwise there's no point in doing it. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's your work too, so. And then uh, you, you played, uh, I'm, I'm counting, 897 different roles in Disaster. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, and that was a big dream come true for me because I, I don't get to do a lot of comedy, and certainly not a lot of broad <laughs> comedy. And there was, you know, perhaps no comedy as broad as Disaster in that season. And when I saw who was in the cast, <laughs> I thought, I'm going to be able to kill so many birds with one stone in terms of, you know, bucket list people I want to work with. Between Roger Bard and Faith Prince and Adam Pascal and, you know, and so it was just... It was a thrill for me to be in that rehearsal room and watch somebody like Roger or Faith work on their shtick and just continually to refine it and refine it and refine it. And it was a you know huge learning experience for me and a total blast. It was exhausting every night, I'll tell you that, but it was super fun to do. Exhausting because you just have to not break up because it's so funny what's going on there. <laughs> was a part of it or if you are breaking up you have to you have to be able to like shut that off the moment you set foot on stage because roger would have us just dying backstage and then you know the curtain would go up and you'd have to zip it but having big giant 70s facial hair was useful for that so oh that's that's great i <laughs> <laughs> uh, will go we'll step one back one further into the 2005 production of sweeney todd where you were uh, nominated for a tony award Yes, yes, that was uh, a life-changing experience, you know. I, I always said that, uh, you know, Sweeney Todd was my favorite show, and um, I think it's, you know, one of the top five, if not higher, greatest uh, pieces written for the genre. And, you know, you rarely get to do your favorite piece um, in an environment where it is not only radically reconceived, but artistically successful, critically acclaimed, and financially successful enough to be able to allow you to run in it and have people come and enjoy it for an extended period of time. Um, and I feel like all of those things came true with that piece. It was really like, you know, hitting the jackpot. Like, 
you know, all the, on the one arm bandit, you know, everything came up, the stars aligned. And I said to myself after that show, uh, you know, if you never knew, do another Broadway musical again, this is a pretty good way to go out, you know? And I took a break for a while after that, um, from, from Broadway musicals, cause I thought it's not going to get much better than this. Um, but then, you know, you miss it and you come back to it and everything gets put in perspective. And, um, but it was, it was extraordinary. And working with John Doyle in what was his, you know, he's a well-known, you know, director now in New York. But you have to remember, nobody knew who he was then. Mm. This was his first show. And people had such specific ideas about this beloved musical of theirs. And they came to see it and they either loved it or hated it, which is, as he always likes to say, perfectly fine with him. It's the, you know, lukewarm indifference that he <laughs> objects to. Um, and we had, you know, I got to work with, with Patti Lapone and Michael Cerberus. And that's, um, again, something that uh, I, I, will, I will treasure forever. So I'm, I'm hugely grateful for that, you know. We're well, very recall. lucky if we get friends like that. Go ahead, Michael, Sorry. what were you saying? Uh, I oh, was just- I'm sorry, Michael. So what I was saying was, uh, you you mentioned before that you're a big Sontime file. Uh, Yeah. How were you a big Sontime file before Sweeney Todd? I was. I became infinitely more of one. I will say that uh, afterwards, um, partially because you know when you are in the piece, you recognize you know details of genius that you didn't otherwise. But also because the man himself was just such an extraordinarily generous and loving and uh, open uh, human being during the process. And you know it it, it, it takes a lot. For, I think, um, somebody who has written this extraordinary piece to be able to let go of preconceived notions of how it should be done. And because he is such a true man of the theater, he recognizes that if you write something strong enough, it can withstand this kind of radical torquing, which is what you know John likes to do to these shows. And uh, I just thought that was uh, extraordinarily artistically mature of him and generous to fellow artists who were inspired by his work. And um, of course, he gave me you know two gifts, which I will treasure forever one of which is his uh, favorite uh, edition of the thesaurus and one of which is his favorite rhyming dictionary and he inscribed them both and um you know in the rhyming dictionary it said you know um two mono please see you know page 473 or something and then you look under 473 and it's all the rhymes for mono you know like guano and stuff like this and then he had written in the margins brian boitano and <laughs> in Mentano. And, um, and then for the, yeah, and for the, um, you know, thesaurus, it said something like two mono for with great 492s for your 681s. And then you have to go to page 492 and it says it's all the synonyms for respect. And then you go to the other reference number and it's all the synonyms for talent. And it's just this, you know, wonderfully generous, playful. It's still a game. There's a puzzle to be teased there. And I think it was because I had written, uh, just sort of as an experiment, an opening night uh, sonnet for Sweeney Todd. And I had hidden in it an acrostic, you know, where the first letter of every line spells something out from top to bottom. Mm, Yeah. 
And what it spelled out was, and I'm full of joy, which, of course, is Sweeney's big uh, uh, call in the middle of Epiphany. And nobody noticed it, who I gave it to, except for him, of course. (laughs) And he noticed it, and he wrote me a little note saying that he had and how much he liked it. And, you know, and that, of course, was a... That's a keeper as well. And um, I think he just wanted to encourage me to uh, keep writing, which I did. I've written, you know, a dozen opening night acrostic sonnets since that time. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Do I recall that your first appearance in Sweeney Todd was in a straight jacket? Correct. <laughs> that Correct. must have been fun. <laughs> it was. It was, because that was, you know, not what people expect from the beginning of Sweeney Todd. <laughs> And right. that, that's something that you brought from home into rehearsal, or? Uh... <laughs> of course, of course, because, you know, I can't sleep without it, so, you know. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you, you mentioned you have a three-year-old daughter now, and, you know, when she gets yeah. older, she's like, yeah, during, you know, bring your dad to, to school day, yeah, my, my Tony-nominated <laughs> dad. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the. I'm going to have to talk to my uh, colleagues who are parents in the business. But uh, theater kids are their own, you know, unique uh, species. And she already, you know, I just did a show out at the Old Globe, and she wanted to go in the theater on a Monday when it was dark. And I thought, oh, she's going to be so scared. It's going to be so dark. But there was the ghost light, and she loved <laughs> the ghost light. And I was able to snap this beautiful picture of her just looking up at it and i thought oh boy here we go this is how it starts oh yeah that's how it starts (laughs) what were you doing out at old globe uh i was doing the premiere of a new uh play by ken ludwig uh called robin hood exclamation point and um (laughs) that was reunited me with my um amelie castmate paul witty and i got to work with kevin cahoon for the first time which is somebody i've admired for many many years and um was directed by the great Jessica Stone, who um, is going to be directing a Broadway musical sooner rather than later, I think. Mm. She certainly should be. Um, and she was great to talk to because she's an, an, an actress-turned-director, and that is a path that I may pursue at some point as well, at least part-time. Well, I want to thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Manuel Belciano can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Mano uh, Belciano. And we will have links to that in the show notes. Uh, we were also talking about uh, Zippers, which is the world premiere cast recording, which is found on the Ghostlight uh, label. And uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes as well. Manuel, thank you so much and have a great rest of your Sunday. Thank you so much, guys. A pleasure to talk to you. Yes, see you soon. Yes, I'll give you a call, I say. And that for the time being is that. Okay. So, Jan, you got over to the Duke, where uh, the Playwrights Realm is uh, producing a play called The Rape of the Sabine Women. So tell us about that. Well, it's actually called The Rape of the Sabine Women by Grace B. Mathias. Ah. 
um, it's written by a guy named Michael Yates Crowley. Uh, and he plays with the uh, classic painting um, that depicts the rape of the Sabine women by in, in Roman uh, mythology. Uh, but his play is focused very much today, and it's about the aftermath of uh, the rape, the date rape, I suppose, of a young high school woman. Oh. And uh, he looks at all of the different ways uh, that society responds to this. And the young man who's accused of uh, raping this uh, young woman, Grace B. Mathias, um, is, a, is an athlete at the high school. Uh, where they go. He's on the football team. It's a championship team. And no one wants any aspersions cast on him because they don't want to lose him as a team member. Um, it's picked up by the media. And so there's a media component. There are lawyers who have their own points of view. Uh, the people at school have their points of view. And in the middle is this very complex young woman because she's not quite sure if it was a rape or not. Um, and and she 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 knows that it went further than she wanted. That she wasn't sure she wanted it to go that far. But she likes this this guy. She likes that he pays attention to her. And so it's a very uh, layered look at rape culture. Uh, and, and, and as it plays out in high schools. There's been a little bit of controversy because this is a play about the rape of a young woman that's written by a guy, by a man. Um, but I thought it was, it was a very interesting and, again, textured look um, at, this, uh, at this topic. And it's wonderfully directed and performed particularly by Susanna Perkins, who's a young actress who plays the central character of Grace. She was also in The Wolves. And this was the play that the Playwrights Realm did last um, season that is now going to transfer to uh, Lincoln Center about a girl's um, uh, soccer team, I believe. And uh, what I love about Playwrights Realm is that it is finding playwrights really at the beginning of their career, and they are really focusing, because they are young uh, people, they're really focusing on issues that concern them and, and their friends. And the night I went was one of the few nights I've been in the theater in a long time where um, the majority of the people were under 30. And, um, mm. you know, it's a, if you build it, they'll come. And so here is a play that was dealing with their lives, and, and, and they came. Um, this play is not as, as, as strong as The Wolves was, but I would really recommend that people uh, go out and see it. And I'd also recommend that they um, support um, the playwrights realm um, because they're doing really good work in finding these young playwrights and nurturing them. 
Well, I haven't seen this play, but uh, alluding to something that you said, Jan, I, I certainly hope we haven't reached the point where some people think that a, a man can't write a play about a, a woman being raped. Well, you, you know, we're very much in this who gets to tell whose story um, uh, yeah. place right now. And I agree with you. And I think there's a danger in that when it's, I mean, I think everybody should, well, should no, have I, the opportunity to offer their perspective. And it's, you know, it's certainly not going to eliminate the possibility of, of a woman writing a play about the same subject. And that's, I guess that's my first reaction is that that can be a little dangerous when it's brought to the extreme. No, I agree with you. And again, um, I think, uh, this th- this young playwright does a really um, interesting job. It's not it's not uh, the play isn't written and it isn't directed in a naturalistic way. Um, uh, it's it's a very interesting take and and just very interestingly performed and just raises questions, um, saying that there. Are no simple answers often to the questions that we we ask. Period, and that particularly we ask around this subject. In the play, everyone wants Grace to take a simple approach. Mm. They they want her to say, you know, he raped me. He's a bad person, or they want her to say, uh, I made a mistake. I got drunk. He's not to blame. And she's in this kind of trying to figure it out world. And I think that that happens uh, for um, a lot of, uh, of young people where the lines aren't as clearly drawn uh, as, as we'd like them to be. Yes, and in fact, um, I, I believe Jan and I both saw a play, a new play called Charm by Philip Dawkins at MCC, and we can't uh, officially review it because it doesn't open um, officially until tomorrow night. But uh, very much the same thing. I, I you know, just briefly, I, I found it deals with transgender issues and makes the point that there is a great am- amount of uh, disagreement. With, even within that community as to exactly what is acceptable and how much is black and white and how much is gray. And, and right. so, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's, it only makes it more interesting when, when things are not black and white. There are probably not that many successful plays about, <laughs> about black and white issues. Right. I think that's what theater is supposed to do. It's supposed yeah. to just present these various ways of looking and ask these questions um, that help us think through um, as opposed to just jumping to one side or the other. Right, right, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up the uh, the wolves from the playwrights realm and uh, that we're going to be seeing it on Broadway. Um, it seems like um, we should keep our eye on the playwrights realm and see what else they're they're going to be doing in their developmental series. They are a, they're, they're, they're a great organization because not only do they identify these young playwrights, um, they give them a residency. So um, I think like they pay insurance, health insurance for them for a year or two. They give them a stipend. They really help them to have the time to develop their craft when they're very young and obviously need that time. 
and um, the uh, I think it's Sarah Delap, who's the woman who did The Wolves. Her play ended up a finalist, I think, for the Pulitzer. Um, yeah. So they've got they've got a good eye, and they're doing good work. Um, I'm not on the board or anything like that, but I just think they're, <laughs> I just think they're they're a good group. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jan, you also get over to uh, Signature Theater on West 42nd Street and saw the Red, the Red Letter plays. Um, are, are we talking about In the Blood this time? Well, it, um, it's uh, – I'm not sure what I can and cannot talk about on this because um, there are two plays that were written by Susan Laurie Parks um, that she says riff off the Scarlet Letter – and the story is that she was on a, a, a canoeing, I think, whitewater canoeing trip with some friends and just out of the clear blue sky said, you know, I'm going to write a play um, riffing off the Scarlet Letter. And as she has said, she had not at that point read the Scarlet Letter. She just thought it was sort of a funny thing to say. And then when she got back from the trip, she actually did read the book found that it really did uh, stimulate some stuff in her and decided she was going to write this play. And the play um, that she said she was going to write was a play called Fucking A. So that's what she thought was sort of funny, the joke. Hey, the Scarlet Letter, Fucking A. Um, And everybody, I suppose thinks back to you know high school or junior high school, reading Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter uh, set during the Puritan period um, when this woman, Hester Prynne, has a child out of wedlock and is um, uh, isolated by her community and forced to wear the Scarlet Letter A for adulteress because mm-hmm. she is unmarried. And so Susan Laurie Park sat down to write her play Fucking A, and she said she had just a horrible time uh, uh, doing it. She put it aside. This was back in the 90s. She put it aside, came back to it, um, and she says that she uh, decided to just erase everything that didn't work um, in her first draft. And by the time she was finished, all she had was the title, fucking A. She just erased everything else. Um, and so she sat there sort of with a blank screen, and she thought, I just can't do this. And she started an idea for another play came to her mind, and that play was In the Blood. And it, she says she wrote it very quickly. It, too dealt with themes from um, the Scarlet Letter, but she was able to read to, to do it very quickly, and then she came back to the play that she wanted to do originally, Fucking A. And so there were these two plays dealing with the themes of the Scarlet Letter, and now they are both being presented at Signature. It's the first time that they've been presented, you know, kind of like in dialogue with one another, And Signature has hired two separate uh, uh, directors and two entirely different casts, um, and they're they're playing simultaneously. Fucking A opened last week, and In the Blood opens tomorrow, I think. So that's why I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about that, too. What do you guys think? (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure that I've seen... uh, In the Blood? Yeah, people talking about (laughs) both of them. 
okay. and I and I don't think that uh, we're in. Uh, I, I don't think they'll be too mad at us. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, maybe they might be, but we'll see. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I thought um, Fucking A, which was uh, directed by Joe Bonney, was terrific. Um, it's uh, the story of a woman. It's very Brechtian, and it's set in this town we don't quite know where, uh, in this time we don't quite nowhere um and the a uh that this woman wears is for abortionists she is the town abortionist and uh she too is isolated and rejected by the town even though everyone um in the town who needs these services make their way to her door she started out she was a poor woman she started out as uh, a servant a house cleaner and her son was arrested when he was a boy and he uh was sent away and she has been trying for now the past 30 years to earn enough money to buy her son out of prison and so that's the sort of framework in which uh, 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 the, the story uh, is told. Uh, her best friend is the town prostitute who also happens to be the mistress of the mayor of the town. Uh, the mayor's wife it turns out to be the woman who testified against Hester. Her name is Hester, uh, the abortionist. Uh, her name is Hester, just as in the original Scarlet Letter. Uh, the mayor's wife turns out to be the person who, when she was a girl, testified against Hester's son and is the reason he was sent to prison. Um, so th- there are all of these interlocking uh, relationships and uh, Susan Laurie Parks has written several songs, so many songs that I- I'm not sure that it doesn't qualify as a musical. I, I guess it it's considered a play with a lot of music. Um, the actors perform, uh, play their own instruments, sort of um, John Doyle style, and uh, sing and perform. And the the cast is just wonderful just incredible um it's led by um christine lottie who hasn't done a lot on stage and i sort of thought going in oh dear i hope signature's not falling into the habit of getting a television name a movie name and um i don't know like 10 minutes in if that i was totally disabused of that notion she's just wonderful at conveying the anguish, um, the pain of this woman. The uh, play also in a Brechtian style is a critique on capitalism, poverty, the way poor people are treated, particularly the way women are treated um, in this society. And she just gives a wonderful performance. Uh, Her best friend uh, is played by the actress uh, Joaquina Cavalcongo. The mayor is played by Mark Kudish, and uh, her son, now grown, is played by Brandon Victor Dixon. Uh, there, there. It's it's a very moving performance, uh, a, a production in 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 general. 
several of the performances being very moving. It's also interesting because uh, the casting has obviously been done in terms of talent, not in terms of, um, I guess it's really sort of uh, race-neutral casting. In the original production in the 90s, uh, the uh, character of Hester was played by Esapetha Merkerson, um, and here it's played by Christine Lottie. Um, So they're really uh, just casting on the on, on the qualities that they're looking for and it was a really wonderful evening I didn't feel that way when I saw In the Blood In the Blood is a, a, a story about a woman who has a lot of it's a contemporary play uh, set in the now she's a woman who has I believe six children um, all by different fathers and so it, the actors who have been cast and this has been cast I, I think race consciously are very uh, different ethnicities black, white, Asian uh, the mother um, is uh, played by Sekon Sengbla um, uh, and uh, it's about whether or not she can feed and sustain her children uh, the neighbors, the people around her are very condemnatory. Why does she have so many children? Why doesn't she have a job? Why should society support this kind of person? And her letter, uh, the, the way the Scarlet Letter uh, enters here, is that the only, she is illiterate, and the only letter she can write is an A. And so that's uh, uh, where the letter um, enters. The director here is Sarah Benson um, from uh, the artistic director of Soho Rep. And Soho Rep often has a very um, avant-garde style. And so this is totally non-naturalistic. The most of the actors enter by sliding um, down this wall and they spent a lot of time running up the wall and sliding down the wall and you know i sort of get it that they're uh, they can't get out of the hole they're in society is stacked against them but it was the set is deliberately ugly and at times there's this big shoot and the shoot just lets go garbage real garbage. And so the garbage fills the set. There were a couple of times when people in the first row, you could see were like leaning back and actors had to like sweep away the garbage to keep it from falling on the people in the first act. It was just, <laughs> Gosh. it was not a, um, uh, it, to me, I would have preferred a slightly more naturalistic approach because this was just so off-putting. I, I think I got her concept, but it was just so off-putting that I didn't find it um, uh, enjoyable uh, at all. Although it had some terrific actors, I've already said, um, Sekon uh, Singbla, Frank Wood was in it, uh, Russell G. Jones, Jocelyn Bio, um, and 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 others. All terrific actors, all doing, uh, uh, playing both her children and people in the community, doctors, uh, social workers. Um, uh, but it wasn't as satisfying. 
All right. So those are the red letter plays that are uh, playing over at the Parishing Square Signature Center on West 42nd Street. We'll have links to that stuff in the show notes as well, both of those productions. Uh, Jan, you also saw uh, for Peter Pan on her 70th birthday at Playwrights Horizons. (laughs) So tell us about that. This is a play by Sarah Rule that she has uh, written about and spoken about that she wrote as a present for her mother. Her mother um, was a, is, her mother's alive. Her mother uh, is an occasional actress in Chicago. And she almost took a documentary approach to the story where she went and she interviewed her family members and incorporated a lot of it into the play. The play is only 90 minutes, but it's divided into three sort of um, equal in length scenes. The first is a deathbed vigil where five grown siblings have gathered at the deathbed of their father, who is their last surviving parent. Their mother has already died. Then in the middle scene, they are gathered back at the family home uh, in in like a wake situation where they're drinking uh, and remembering their childhood, talking about their lives, talking about their beliefs, about what happens in the afterlife, uh, looking back to see whether or not they fulfilled their dreams um, now that they're not only middle-aged, but now that they no longer have a parent, um, they're first in line in terms of the mortality, uh, you know, uh, treadmill. They're they're now moving uh, ahead. And then the last scene, um, people who know Sarah Rule's work know that she likes to dabble in surrealism and whimsy. And the last scene is set in Neverland. The oldest sister of the five siblings is played by um, Kathleen Chalfant, the great Kathleen Chalfant. And she, one of her biggest memories, most important memories, is when she played Peter Pan in a, uh, a, a high school production. And that is the same with Sarah Rule's mother. Sarah Rule's mother played Peter Pan and um, and actually at one point got to uh, have a picture taken with Mary Martin. Um, so she, this woman, uh, uh, so the last scene um is set in Neverland and actually is supposed to suggest, I think, what her idea of the afterlife might be. It is a play that's looking just straight in the face of how do we think about, how do we deal with death? And particularly when we are people who are growing uh, older, not people in their 20s and 30s or even 40s, but people 50, 60, 70 and above. How do we, how do we deal with this inevitability? Um, and I was just terribly moved by it. I... Um, I I know that part of it, you know, you bring yourself to the theater and theater is a conversation between the performance on stage and the person in the audience or the people in the audience. And I know that I brought into the theater a 
a friend died at a relatively early age earlier this summer. She was uh, 62. And um, her death has been greatly on my mind. And this play, um, I, I don't want to say it was comforting. Um, I also don't want to make it sound dour because it's really funny. I mean, Sarah Rule is a funny writer. And so it's there are lots of there's a lot of humor, but a, a lot of serious thought about again, how do we reconcile uh, uh, ourselves to our our own mortality? Um, I found it very, really, really moving. Oh, so I, I can see from how you, how you explained it, how it could be uh, a really important show for people. Uh, before we started to record, um, we we talked about that this was going to be a minority review as the other reviewers yeah. out there have really slammed yeah. this show. But, yeah. Uh, in hearing your explanation about it, I see it in a whole different light uh, versus the other. Um, Laura, <laughs> I don't want to say Brantley's name, but Brantley, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so who really yeah. did not like the show. No, he said it was for the Lipitor generation, and I just want to get on on the record. I do not take Lipitor. So, <laughs> but, um, but we'd so be I'm, happy to accept Lipitor as a sponsor if they'd like to sponsor Broadway Radio. Yes. <laughs> just want to get that on the record there. Yes, make that clear. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I really do hope um, all of you, um, uh, uh, including uh, Peter Go, because I'd love to hear um, uh, uh, what you what you think of it. Hmm. All right. So uh, we'll see. Michael, you scheduled to see this? Um, I think I have it coming up. Yeah, I have to double check that. It, but it's certainly. I mean, I love Kathleen Chalfant, so yeah. that would be <laughs> one reason I would go aside from everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, she can just, uh, I don't know, can she give a bad performance? I mean, she's just don't so think, good. I don't think so. I don't want you to spoil anything, but does she break through the ceiling in this one? <laughs> no, but she <laughs> takes to the air. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> this is a woman who's not afraid of heights. To fly. No. <laughs> No. <clears throat> okay, uh, Michael, last week we previewed the uh, Chita Rivera Awards, and uh, you got to go see them uh, this past Monday. So tell us, give us a report on them. Yes, um, Monday, September 11th at the Hirschfeld Theater, uh, the Chita Rivera Awards for Dance. This is a rebranding of the Fred and Estelle uh, 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 Fred and Adele Astaire Awards, and mostly... Uh, Awards for Broadway, a uh, film also, but focusing on, on Broadway and off-Broadway, uh, New York Theater Dance Awards, which is certainly uh, an award that's very necessary. Um, this was the first time in a Broadway theater, so that was nice. There were some technical issues, but overall, in terms of the presentation and the entertainment, it was, it was really quite wonderful. Randy Skinner directed 
and also uh, choreographed the closing number, which was absolutely fantastic. It's not where you start, it's where you finish from Seesaw, um, featuring Robert Fairchild and a, a lot of great dancers in an amazing tap number. Uh, I think the reason that um, particular number was chosen was partly because Tommy Toon was one of the evening's honorees and um, some of the honorees were uh, were really um, I guess some were a surprise uh, I, I wanted to mention a few of the major ones uh, the audience seemed really really happy when Andy Blankenbuehler won for outstanding choreography in a Broadway show for his work on Bandstand because I, I do think that whatever issues that show may have uh, in terms of the writing and for whatever reason that it didn't connect with a huge audience and is uh, actually closing today, I believe, as we speak. Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, for all of that, I think that the choreography is quite superb in terms of the way that it helps tell the story uh, of that show about these um, World War II veterans who are trying to put their lives back together and uh, and form a band in order to help them do that. So, yes, I think that Andy's win was something that the audience really liked. And, of course, he won the Tony also for Bandstand, so uh, I'm glad that his work on that show was really greatly appreciated. Um, other winners at the Cheetah Awards were Megan Sakura and Corbin Blue for Holiday Inn uh, as Outstanding Female and Outstanding Male Dancer in a Broadway show, which I, that was a little surprising to me, if only because I feel like that wasn't such a high-profile show. And also maybe their roles were not as uh, dance-heavy as some other dance roles we can think of. But um, certainly two very deserving performances. Um, Two other interesting awards. Well, the, the Ensemble Award, the Outstanding Ensemble in a Broadway Show, went to Natasha Pierre, um, mm. which uh, certainly one of the hardest working uh, and most energetic ensembles on Broadway. Maybe not, uh, again, not that much emphasis on actual dance throughout most of the show, although there was that incredible number <laughs> um, to, uh, in Act Two. That was that was amazing. Um, but And then uh, Outstanding Choreography in an Off-Broadway Show went to Joshua Bergas, if that's the, his correct pronunciation, I hope so, for Sweet Charity. And in his award, uh, in his acceptance speech, he, um, he made a, a sweet reference to the, uh, one can imagine the challenges of doing this show. And although he didn't mention him by name, I, I, you know, I assumed he was referring to Bob Fosse. <laughs> um, so that... Uh, those were some of the major winners. Um, the entertainment, in addition to the, the closing number that I mentioned, uh, Robert Fairchild and Melanie Moore uh, also did a pas de deux from the, the film La La Land uh, the, hmm. the, to the song City, the number City of Stars. And that was uh, choreographed by Mandy Moore. And then um, another big highlight was We'll Take a Glass Together from Grand Hotel, um, which... Uh, was of course choreographed originally by Tommy Toon, and and that choreography was recreated. And the the uh, two uh, featured people in that number were Mikey Winslow and Tony Yazbek, who I'm told um, that Tony learned the number on extremely short notice because uh, someone else who was supposed to do it they weren't sure if he was going to be able to make it. Um, so he was absolutely perfect in every detail and. 
amazing in it. Uh, so if so that even more so if that's true about the incredibly short notice uh he really is an is extremely talented person as can be seen it currently in um in prince of broadway and i i just thought that he was one of the highlights of the evening and i'm really glad that i got to the cheetah awards it sounds like fun yes yes wish i'd gone to that yeah uh-huh. <laughs> it was next year next year yeah Gina. And not only uh, could you go, but you could win one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, did, what did Cheetah say? What did Cheetah say? What, I mean, I assume she was somehow. Well, she, well, she was, of course, very, uh, very honored. She, she said she was honored to be there. And, and, and that is one uh, obvious benefit of the rebranding is that we have a living person who can stand up and uh, and and speak to the crowd. And, of course, needless to say, you know, everyone loves her. And when she came on stage, there was a, a huge response. And uh, she just spoke of how great the talent is and and um there was a, oh the opening number was uh, um was america from west side story oh. so of course she uh talked about <laughs> that because it is the uh this year is the 60th anniversary i sense a transition here well yes i mean there is one because <laughs> September 26th coming up is the actual 60th anniversary of the opening of West Side Story on Broadway at the Winter Garden Theater. And I am um, putting together and hosting an evening at Feinstein's 54 Below uh, to celebrate with um, uh, some wonderful talent singing uh, some of the major songs from the score. We have Ashley Marie, who played Maria in several major regional productions of the show uh, in California. Uh, Tyler Milliron, who was recently in Spamilton and uh, has done some shows from musicals tonight. Leah Horowitz, um, who's been on Broadway in Follies, White Christmas, Les Mis, and Fiddler, among other things. Natalie Storrs, most recently uh, seen in the Sister Act First National Tour, uh, cabaret star Natalie Douglas, Matthew and John Drinkwater, and a special appearance by Harvey Evans, who uh, was not not only in West Side Story on Broadway, but also in the film. So he has a tremendous history mm-hmm. with that. And then we have Matthew Ward at the piano. And I think it's um, going to be a lovely way to celebrate the uh, actual anniversary of the show. I mean, 60 years is kind of amazing. Um, There are other, lots of other events coming up for West Side Story. And also um, 2018, it turns out, is the centennial year of both Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins. Um, So that's kind of neat. And actually 2017, this year, is the centennial of Arthur Lawrence. So all these people... (laughs) were, um, you know, born around the same time. And then, you know, 60 years ago or so, they converged uh, uh, to create this amazing, amazing piece. Uh, Now, I'm sorry, I didn't look up. What is Stephen Sondheim's birth year? Uh, Well, he just turns just one second uh so he was he was the baby of the group he He was 26 he was he he was the baby of the group i mean i knew he was much younger but he was born in 1930 um so 
they uh, it just was a, a remarkable convergence of talent and and the history of the show is is so fascinating the way I, i'm sure um you've both heard that it was originally going to be called east side story uh, the idea came uh years earlier and jerome robbins had that idea for east side story and it was going to be about uh, uh i think a catholic boy and a jewish girl or, or vice versa so but then the um there wound up being this huge influx of Puerto Ricans to to America, and so they decided to change it. Um, and so, yeah, there's um, there was a recent British documentary about West Side Story. There's a new American documentary coming up, and the group Dancers Over Forty is having a reunion of original cast members. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I, I think there can't be too many celebrations of this show. There's also a um, a what looks like from the clips, a really fantastic global tour that has been out for uh, a bit now. And I think it has some U S dates coming up. Um, so that's something else that you might be able to get to see uh, somewhere in a theater near you. You know, they could never do a West side story today, right? Well, it probably in many ways, but in which ways do you mean, James? No, nobody can afford to live in Manhattan. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to even afford to, to move here to begin with. <laughs> Maybe if it was like West Side Stories where like uh, the Seattle Coffee Company and Starbucks baristas get together. <laughs> well, you know, I mean um, – Sadly, the themes of the show are are still all too prevalent. We just recently uh, had our most recent terrorist attack in London, and and I think it's, you know, it's unfortunately uh, people are always always going to find reasons to hate each other, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and we can only live for the moments when love triumphs over that, uh, which usually I think happens. It's easier to happen on an interpersonal level more than a than a global and international level, as we have seen. It's. Um, I think I think that we're going to be able to talk about that a lot this fall in the band's visit. Oh, another yeah. yes, another wonderful musical that's coming to Broadway from Off Broadway. Yes, yes, very similar, very similar. The band's themes. visit, where you know people are. From afar, they hate each other. Once they get together and share some music and good times together, they find common ground. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So on that good note, let's wrap up for this morning. I want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts as it's come to be known. Uh, that's not the only way you can get us. You can get us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio. Google Play plays us. uh, TuneIn plays us. The Stitcher app plays us. So there are lots of different ways that we can – you can uh, listen to us in that way as well. Contact information for Jan and for Michael and for me can be found at broaderradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. And – I guess that's about it for that. Uh, Through the miracle of technology, we're going to bring in Peter to give us the answer to last week's question. All right, Peter. Welcome back. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you give us the answer to last week's trivia? 
Well, the question was what performer who appeared regularly on the TV series Green Acre also appeared in the film version of 1776? And the answer is, believe it or not, Arnold the Pig. That's why I didn't say actor. That's why I didn't say actress. I said performer. Yes, Arnold the Pig. Um, you will find out if you listen to the uh, DVD commentary that Peter Hunt, the director, and Peter Stone, the book writer, did that um, Arnold the Pig was in an outdoor scene. He was just there. Uh, the camera happened to glance on him just for a second. However, Peter Hunt also said that it was in the pig's contract that he be able to stay in his air-conditioned trailer until everybody was on the set and then he would be brought on. He was not going to wait around for actors to come mm-hmm. onto the set. So um, apparently Arnold uh, really was um, very much impressed by his Green Acres pedigree and that he was going to use that leverage to make sure that he got the best treatment uh, he possibly could. So that was the answer to that question. And Peter asked me to let you all know that the winners or the people that answered them the question first were Jack Leshner and Dave uh Silcannon. Silcannon? Dave, I'm sorry if I killed your last <laughs> name. But and through the other miracle of technology, here is the new question for the week. What does Patricia Morrison of Kiss Me Kate fame have in common with a musical from the eighties that ran one performance? So that's next week's question. Hmm. All right. If you know the answer to that, uh, email us at triviaatbroadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. But was it? Is it too much too fast? It was. It is. I don't know why I feel. Maybe we should just step inside. Can't we someplace private and comfortable? Someplace quiet. Somewhere we can. Somewhere talk. we can talk. Maybe in my dressing room. It's my room. Tails, it's your Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs>